0: Welcome to Friday. Welcome to DC. Signal to thank you for joining us here in the new year, and as always, plenty to talk about. Some we want to talk about, a lot we don't want to talk about, but we're going to talk about anyways, right, Jim Weismier?
1: Yes, as usual. What?
0: what you- as usual, and we've we've got a special guest with us this week, John Dog, CEO of the National Corn Growers Association, uh, with some exciting news about interaction with the new uh, Biden administration. But amongst other topics, we're going to talk about John. Thanks for joining us today.
2: Boy, it's good to be with you. It really is. Thanks.
0: All right. Well, let's get right down to it. Um, and, and let's start with uh, the biggest news of the week. And that is the the events in Washington uh, Wednesday and, and still ongoing. Um, first, I'm just going to open it up uh, to you, Jim, first. And then, John, uh, your reaction, your thoughts, what you want to express about what has transpired this week.
1: Well, it it was a tragedy. There was a crime scene at the Capitol, unlike we've ever seen, and it's unfortunate, big time. Uh, and there will be repercussions. It's it's it it's made a very volatile issue, even more so. But it, it really, you know, uh, emphasizes the need, as John said earlier. You know, for the return of bipartisanship to as you know many of the areas that we can possibly get. But it was a very ugly situation brought on by a host of uh, events. And I've never seen a president crater as fast as President Trump has. So, uh, you know, that, those are the initial bottom lines here. But let's hope we've turned the curve to the positive side, John.
0: It really is remarkable how an event that uh, Donald Trump thought was going to strengthen his position has really tremendously weakened his position, not only in his remaining 13 days in office, but really uh, prospects for um, control of the the Republican Party from here on out. Uh, John Doggett, your thoughts on on what's happened?
2: You know, I've been thinking a lot since Wednesday. Uh, You know, I started my career in Washington in February of 1988. Ronald Reagan was the president, Tip O'Neill was the the speaker of the house, Robert Byrd was the majority leader. I remember the first time I walked into the Capitol with my boss, Congressman Marlenae, and I've been in the Capitol building in the ensuing 32 years, hundreds of times. And I've always approached it with a a bit of awe, uh, a real recognition of the importance and the symbols uh, of that great building. And I was just heartsick, sick, heart sick and, and angry uh, on Wednesday. And and I think we're all still trying to grapple with this and you know, what it means and, and what it says about us. And I, you know, a, a lot of finger pointing is going to happen. But I think some of the finger pointing ought to be directed back to each of us as individuals. We, we need to be better committed to uh, to to this democracy than maybe we have been.
0: And I'd add committed to truth and and finding that universal truth and admitting that there is a universal truth and that we can't each just live in our own opinion uh, from here on out. Um, I, something I, I've heard of interest this week to me um, as someone who spent uh, a fair amount of time off and on visiting DC um, and, and heard from others that, that are there intermittently like that saying that, that have been there recently saying that the city is very different than what I would remember, uh, not only from the events of Wednesday, but also uh, the events uh, of the summer um, and uh, the shutdowns of coronavirus has really made it a very physically different city than than what most of us would remember there.
2: It's all of that, uh, you know, and and you, you see all of the businesses that are you know shuttered uh, and probably will never come back because of the pandemic. Uh, a lot of people out of work. Uh, you know these moratoriums on on foreclosures and evictions. When all that ends, uh, we're going to have not only in Washington but but around the country some some really difficult things we're going to have to deal with. It's a different city in Washington, uh, but Washington's a, a resilient city. It is a city that has come back from a lot of different things. And and I was reminding my staff this morning about. Um, I remembered when I was I was 12 years old, 1968. You know, Washington burned uh, after Martin Luther King was killed April the 6th of 1968. Washington burned. A lot of people died. We came back from that. We, we, we can come back. This is America. This is the land of second opportunities.
0: Well, and let's talk a, bit, a little bit about that, because uh, before we started recording in, in the pre-show, and again, I would invite folks. Um, who are just listening on the podcast. Uh, We record this live two o'clock every Friday afternoon, and uh, you can join the conversation live on the AgriTalk Facebook page. You just listen to the podcast. Next week, join us live at 2 uh, to Eastern on the uh, AgriFuck Facebook page, and you can send us questions in real time. Uh, in fact, let's let's acknowledge a couple of the uh, the comments coming in. Terry Hutton saying, uh, "Yes, we are all responsible. Um, we all just agreed wholeheartedly to that." Uh, Dana saying, "Rabbit politics had no business in family farming. Never did. Minute one that war Warhawk ways uh, fed never belonged in our agriculture. It was unfit day one." Um, I appreciate those comments coming in. Um, uh, Day and I disagree with uh, a little bit that I I think all of us, either that that opposed Donald Trump or embraced Donald Trump, had hopes from day one that there would be a successful presidency, as we all hope uh, come January 20th, there will be a successful presidency with Joe Biden. Um, It has just turned out that uh, it is a very, very uh, unfortunate and unpatriotic ending to this uh, presidency here here in the last few days. Um, But let's turn a little more positive, uh, because, John, you you said there are real signals of bipartisanship in this seemingly fractured Washington DC.
2: You know, I I do a podcast uh, for the corn growers, and we do it monthly. And and, uh, we did a podcast with two members of the Problem Solvers uh, Caucus in the House of Representatives Dusty Johnson, uh, a Republican from South Dakota, and Abigail Spanberger, a, a Democrat from uh, uh, from Virginia. Uh, they're, they're members of this caucus, uh, equally divided between Republicans and, and Democrats, and they're up to about 50 members now, and And are, they are committed to finding problems in the middle. You know, really, America works best when we, we do our politics between the 40-yard lines, and uh, the problem solvers caucus and other uh uh activities are are really helpful we're seeing an emergence of uh, of a kind of a loose-knit coalition of moderates from both parties in the senate uh and you know if you can get eight ten twelve members of the senate to be unified in the middle that's going to move things a lot and i think uh, that that gives me some optimism for the future
0: yeah, I encourage folks to check out the uh, Wherever John May Rome uh, podcast out there. Give that a listen uh, every month, because there's a lot of great information like that in that interview that you just mentioned. I mean, that Problem Solvers Caucus, they were the ones that brought us to uh, it, it wasn't perfect, but brought us to a coronavirus aid package just before the last Congress uh, recessed. So uh, they are doing good work. Um Question from from Gary, something you and I have uh, discussed previously, Jim, and that is, does Joe Manchin still switch party possibly? And is he the most powerful man in D.C.? Well, the <laughs> the answer to the que- second question is, if he's not the most, he's he's up there right now. He's he's going to get a lot of uh, West Virginia is going to get a lot of infrastructure over the, at least the next couple of years, um, which would lead me to say, no, he doesn't change party, Jim. Uh, He wouldn't he he lose party if he changed party at this point?
1: Well, he can yield a lot of power staying right where he's at. Of course, I think they tried behind the scenes. But, you know, we're seeing his importance reflected just today if the wire surfaces are correct, where, you know, Senator Manchin came out and said he will not support the two thousand dollar Um, you know, payment, you know, bill. Now, that doesn't mean Republicans won't, a few, enough Republicans will, 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 I think, will join that cause. But it shows uh, that with so tight Senate 50-50, you know, with the Democrats controlling it because of the vice president uh, and the House, the narrowest margin since the 1940s, uh, you're going to have to have compromise. So that might play into what john was saying uh to get a a lot of things done i think the best and easiest way would be to compromise between the two parties it can still be done
0: it it can be and i I think in some ways what has happened this week might foster some more of that. I mean, you are going to see some hardening positions, hardening of positions on the fringes, but I think there are a lot more being brought into the middle to try to combat some of that. Um, Just a a couple final thoughts on uh, Wednesday before we move on. I'll let you guys uh, uh, chime in too on this if you have anything to add. But uh, number one, I think it is of utmost importance for us and everyone else to say strongly, there is no evidence of any sort of election irregularity of a scale that would impact the outcome certified by the 50 states uh, in this presidential election. Joe Biden is the legitimate next president of the United States. Um, that that certification in no way should ha- have held up the, the ultimate uh, certification in Congress of Joe Biden's win, but... I do think, and Jim, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, and John, I do think that Congress needs to follow up with some sort of uh, evaluation of election security and the election process, uh, if nothing else, than to build confidence in the integrity of public elections uh, being held by the states.
1: Yeah, there should be some type of bipartisan commission with uh elders of you know both parties mm-hmm. an excellent example is to bring back already Pat Roberts uh, who just retired from Kansas uh, Colin Peterson from Minnesota and other lawmakers of that ilk who who are fair minded and yeah I I do think that they usually most blue ribbon commissions is just covering up but you know this one would be airing airing some very sensitive issues out and I think the American public needs it
2: John, I think you want to add on that? Sure. And and I think that's a great idea. One of the things I would suggest that they do if they're going to put together a commission is let's get a let's get local uh, election officials. You know, uh, when I vote here in, in northern Virginia, I, the folks that are running that election over here at the, at the local school, they're my friends and my neighbors. I know a lot of them. And, and, you know, the fact that we we think that some of those folks uh, are still in election, that's crazy. But I I think they have a voice because we have tens of thousands of these very good Americans who go and they, they work at the polls and they count the votes and they help us organize the lines. And this last year they had to make sure everybody was wearing masks. Those are important people to have because our elections in this country have long been under the control of local officials and state officials. We don't do we really want to have federalized elections? I don't think we do. I think we want to devolve that that very important part of our democracy to as low a level as we possibly can because those are the folks that one do the work and two, I think that uh, we can trust.
0: Well, that brings a great deal of security to our election system that it is so disparate. There is no central place to impact the election vote. And I I think we need to do some educating about our our election process, um, because I I don't think a lot of people understand. I've worked as an election judge. I have seen it firsthand. There is a Republican and a Democrat with eyes on those ballots at every moment. Uh, This is not something that someone can go in and easily uh, manipulate Tens of thousands of votes at a single time—it's just—it's—it would be very, very difficult to do in the way that our votes are processed because we do have local control of how that balloting is done. So, all good points there, John. Appreciate it. Uh, well, let's let's move on uh, to some other things, and let's get let's get to the issue at hand of of inviting you on here, John, and that is um, the interaction with the, uh, the Biden administration. I've got to admit, I was. Um, I was behind the scenes um, on the technical side when you were on with Chip Flory a couple weeks ago and broke news that Michael Reagan, the designated to be EPA administrator, on the night before he was nominated officially, calls you out of the blue. It wasn't a planned phone call. Just out of the blue, calls your cell phone and wants to know how EPA can work with growers. Tell us about what was in that call.
1: First, John, is it Reagan or Reagan? yes (laughs) (laughs)
0: yes the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well i have heard him say at reagan's so.
2: oh really okay yeah. all right well uh, in, in
0: in youtube recordings i should okay.
2: say yeah well um it was an interesting call and, and you know you get those you get those calls in the evening and, and you don't recognize the number and i almost you almost didn't, didn't answer
0: think. didn't you no yeah, I, yeah. I
2: really didn't and i i <laughs> You know, there's something, you know, God was with me and uh, I answered and he said, hi, this is Michael Reagan. And, and uh, uh, the president or president-elect Biden is going to name me tomorrow. And, and I really want to hear from you and kind of what's going on with you guys. And I know ethanol is important. We had a conversation about that, a short one. Uh, you know, I pointed out that uh, uh, not only is ethanol important to the corn growers, but it's, it's important to those rural communities out there. That, that ethanol plant at the edge of town is, is generating some econo- economic activity in parts of the country that really need uh, some economic activity, and he understood that. The second thing that we talked about was that, you know, Joe Biden and the, the Democrats are gonna be pushing hard on climate change legislation. And and I told him, we can, we can be part of the solution in agriculture. But we can't if you take away our tools, if you take away the technology, and if you don't find ways to bring more tools and technologies uh, to, the, to that farm field. And uh, if we lose GMOs, if we lose glyphosate, we set back our ability to, to affect climate change uh, to a point where we're, we're not even close to being part of the solution. And what, did he comment, John, or not? What? How yeah. did he respond? Well, you know, obviously, he's got to be very circumspect, uh, as all nominees or potential nominees. Uh, you know, you don't want to say something that um, uh, it becomes a, a, a one of those gotcha questions in a in a hearing. But uh, no, he he listened, and uh, he he said about three times, "We need to make sure we're talking to one another," and. I have found, you know, being a lobbyist for 30 years, if I get an opportunity to be in front of a policymaker and make my case, that's the biggest hurdle I have to overcome is getting into that room and having that ear. If we can do that, we have a great story to tell in American agriculture, and I'm very proud of the organization I I work for. We've done a lot in these areas, and and we have this great story, and I'm I'm just delighted we're going to have some opportunities to tell it.
0: You mentioned getting in that room and and having that ear. There have been times when you've been in that room speaking, but haven't necessarily had that ear. Um, But the sense I get not just from you, but from others who have worked uh, with uh, Michael Reagan in uh, his home state of North Carolina. In fact, we're going to have Ray Starling, um, who's a former uh, White House uh, ag advisor um, and is now working with the North Carolina Chamber. He's going to be on AgriTalk later this week to talk about some of those interactions uh, but it does seem like you are you are in the room with him and he is actively listening.
2: Well, that's the sense I get is is we're going to have uh, we're going to have a much better ability to talk to EPA than we've had, not just the last four years, but maybe the last. I don't know, a long, long time. So uh, looking forward to it.
0: Uh, let me get your reaction, though, on another uh, appointment coming in. That's Gina McCarthy, <laughs> which, um, you know, we think back to sometimes that Ag has been talking but haven't had the year. I think there have been some some instances in her tenure at EPA where that was the case. Uh, do you have concerns about uh, Gina McCarthy being in that position uh, as the domestic uh, climate advisor for the White House and, and, and driving climate policy across all federal agencies?
2: Well, the big difference between the job she had and the job she's going to get is the job she had as the head of EPA, that it isn't making, it's not only making policy, but it's implementing policy in the role she's going to have. That's to advise the president on policy, very different functions. And I think it's significant um, that they're different functions. So we will continue to approach uh, Gina McCarthy like we have in the past. She's, a, you know, she's approachable. Uh, we've, had, we've had a lot of discussions and some of them haven't been uh, happy talk, but uh, we'll have some more discussions with her. But I think uh, she's going to be an advisory role rather than an implementation role. And I think that we need to, to, to mark the difference there.
0: Yeah. What are, have any of your cohorts had similar similar uh, calls from Biden administration officials uh, leading up to this transition?
2: Sure, and and I know that Sippy Duvall got a call. I, I believe um, Rob Larue got a call. Uh, there are others in the Ag space that have have had calls, but uh, from, from somebody like a Michael Regan. But uh, what's really interesting is. Um, our DC staff, not only Brooke Appleton, our, our VP, who runs the office, but, but the directors in the office are getting calls from, from really? the transition teams. So it's not just, you know, it's not the CEO level or the president's level. It's, it's at a director level. It's, and, and that really places me because, you know, uh, those are the folks that do the work. I'm just the, I'm just the pretty face. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad it's that uh, they're doing that over and over again uh we've i don't know how many calls i've been on with those folks and i know that that the rest of the folks uh, on my staff have been having similar calls so it's really good and i know that other organizations are having similar uh conversations and john this is part of their
1: outreach you know policy during the transition and i was told this morning that uh Uh, you know, similar types of calls are being made by uh, 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 officials, uh, including the nominee for the labor department on, you know, sensitive, uh, you know, labor issues. And hopefully that includes uh, the
2: ag groups as well. Has to for agriculture. uh, And and folks say, well, corn doesn't depend on dependent on labor we we definitely are dependent on labor all we had to do is see what happened when the meat packing plants uh, shut down uh back in in april um we're dependent on labor and uh there's a lot of problems to be solved there
0: what kind of questions are you guys getting from the uh, transition team
2: i you know a lot around climate change um and you know we we've Put together this soil health partnership uh, started about five years ago. Uh, it's a we're da- gathering a lot of data from a couple hundred farms or, across the country on on soil health. Uh, that is something they've asked us about, and, and how can can we take the data from there and uh, contribute some knowledge to the the discussions around climate change? Uh, but they're asking us a lot of questions about. Um, Production practices. Uh, one of the things that I I tell folks, not only in the transition team but everybody, uh, our in, our first vice president Chris Edgington, who farms in in Iowa, uh, says a lot, and I and I agree with him. If you haven't been on a corn farm in the last five years, you haven't been on a corn farm. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I when people tell me about. Uh, all the terrible things that, that the corn industry has done, that oftentimes they're talking about what happened in the 70s. And so I, I hold out this little instrument here and say, what did your cell phone look like in 1979? Well, I didn't have a cell phone. Why do you think technology only exists in te- cell phones? It doesn't. The technology our farmers are using is is astounding. And they're using more of it all the time. And they're using it better. You know, if we can, if we can just keep convincing people policymakers that what we're doing and the innovation that we have in these farms is going to solve problems. It's not problems to be solved. We're solving problems.
0: I'd like to get both of your uh, reaction to a comment just came in uh, from Richard on the comments. And again, if you have a comment or question, drop it there in the, uh, in the uh, comment section on Facebook. Um, Richard says buckle down fellow farmers. This is not going to be good. Um, I would say to Uh, One, there is reason to be wary because of where we've been in the past. And we do need to keep a very wary eye on where uh, this administration is headed on climate. But I would say if that is your only reaction to this, you are going to likely miss out on opportunities for revenue in this administration. And, John, I'd like to get your reaction to that first. And then, Jim.
2: Well, um you know as you know I I worked for the American Farm Bureau for 11 years. I was the lead lobbyist on climate change back in the days when we were pushing back against uh cap and trade. This is not that discussion. That is not on the table. What's on the table? That's right good now? to hear. Yeah. That is very on, good to hear. It's not on the table. Who who's who's, who's pushing for for uh, uh uh credits, carbon credits? It's it's private industry. We need to facilitate that and and, and we, we need to be at the table. The most important thing that we're gonna see in, in this is in this climate discussion is a discussion around opportunity for farmers. We have to be at the table. And we can't open up our negotiations and our discussions with, with the administration by saying you guys are gonna be bad for us and cross our no. arms. That's not gonna work. We have to be involved and and the most important thing in this discussion, from our perspective at the National Corn Growers, is let's make sure that the benefits that accrue from this this legislation or whatever happens in Washington, let's make sure those benefits devolve to the farmer at the fork of the creek that is doing the things on his or her farm that reduces the carbon in the atmosphere. Those folks are doing great things. They need to be acknowledged, and they need to continue. They need to get incentives. And they need to get the financial benefits that are going to accrue. I don't want big corporations to benefit from a climate change regime that involves the buying and the selling of credits without farmers getting those payments. Well, yeah, and, and, far- farmers and ranchers should be at least skeptical
1: at the front end. There's no, there's no, you know, no problem with that. But as John says, you have to be at the table. And I do think the the Obama administration learned a lot of lessons, and Biden, of course, part of that, mm-hmm. of how not to do it. And the emails and calls I have received over the last six months or so on this issue from farmers and ranchers is number one, they want it to be voluntary, not mandatory. Number two, they want to be inclusive in the, in, in, in the payment structures with John says, and three, they they don't want to have it like it was before. So, and I think that's what John, you know, was indicating in, in on profarmer.com. This morning, I highlighted what I thought was the most important item I saw today in the New York Times by Andrew Sorkin. Uh, He's a deal book writer there, and I behoove all of you to call it up. It was a a profile of a a data company called Grow Intelligence, and they're going to be key involved in this because, uh, to, to make a long story short, their indexes are going to be uh, used to build an array of markets in this area, including agriculture. And uh, their CEO, Sarah Menker, is a former uh, Morgan Stanley commodities trader, so she knows. Mm. The, the impact there and on their board is Gary Cohen, the former Goldman Sachs president and Trump economic advisor. So, uh, uh, this is the the good things I see. At least they're 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 manning up to get the data. Uh, wh- what are the possibilities? And another thing, John, that I want you to comment on. What farmers have been telling me, they want some legacy uh, 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 initiatives that farmers who have who have already utilized best practices to be competent compensated for that or be
2: part of the new program? Well, that is a, a comment that I made to Michael Reagan, uh, the other day was, if And I hear, I hear it a lot from our growers, uh, and that is, you know, I've been doing no-till for a long, long time. I may have, you know, maximized the amount of, of carbon I can put in my soil. I, I need to have some recognition for that. And as I told, uh, secretary regan the other day if you if you exclude the good actors the folks that have been doing the right thing all these years you exclude all the good actors all you got left are the bad actors that's not who you want to deal with you want to deal with the folks that have made a commitment to doing the right thing not just last week last month, last crop year but for decades and and he understood that uh, because if if you exclude them i i know one way you can go ahead and fix all that real fast let's go back to a mold more plow for two years and and then start all over that's not where we want to go and we're not going to we're not going to advocate for that but i'm with with jim i mean what i've heard from farmers over the last year is a completely different discussion around climate than we had five six ten fifteen years ago it's completely different and a much, much more acceptance and much more the realization that there's some opportunity here. Will it be perfect? Guess what? It won't be. But you know what? We can make it pretty darn good if we work at it.
0: Well, and that uh, sentiment is being reflected by comment here from Dana. Farmers have green agendas. Last I checked. Are we dropping the stewards of the earth mantra? Uh, I think that's probably right on there. I appreciate the comment. Uh, some other questions coming in uh, about livestock and dairy. We'll get to those in just a little bit. But, John, while we're on to this climate discussion, I wanted to ask you what kind of reception you're getting about the the effort that Corn Growers, our Renewable Fuels Association, Growth Energy, uh, other groups are putting forward about ethanol's role in driving this climate agenda and, and quite frankly, being a much faster way of of um, lowering carbon load through uh, transportation, then it can be more quickly and more efficiently than what's being promoted for electric vehicles and sure. probably more well, realistically too.
2: right um, short term and longer term. Um, we have some short-term opportunities in places like California. Mary Nichols, the the uh, head of, of CARB, uh, California Air Resources Board, the conversations we've had with her and her staff uh, in the last two years has been completely different than the conversations we had uh, years before that. She understands now that the more ethanol you put in liquid fuels in, in California, the faster you can drive down the the... the The carbon footprint for transportation. She gets that. Her folks get that. We're trying to get into the California market with an expansion of the use of ethanol. That's going to take some more time, but I think we can get that done. Secondly, we're going to have a need for octane in this country. Uh, As we push for for, uh, cars to have better gas mileage, we're going to see higher compression engines. At least we hope we have higher compression engines that will need octane and, and obviously uh, ethanol is a big part of that, and that's why we are pushing for the uh, uh, the Next Generation Fuels Act, which was introduced by Sherry Bustos in the last Congress. It uh, will be reintroduced, uh, uh, hopefully, fairly quickly here. But, you know, incentivizes and pushes to get that high-octane fuel into the, into the system. Longer term, we have such a great story to tell with ethanol, uh, and it starts at the farm. It starts with how that producer raises that crop all the way to how the plant processes it, how all of that is transported. All of that is just so much more efficient than it ever was before. I, I, you know, I, I, I dare say that we could say that we're a much, if we could include a greater amount of ethanol in the nation's fuel system, we could do a lot more for the environment than electric cars.
0: In order to do that, though, you're going to have to work hand-in-hand with the oil industry, and that has been a very uh, fractured relationship, to put it mildly. Um, But the oil industry really relies on the ethanol industry at this point to extend their longevity. I think there is going to be a compromise found there that will let those two industries work together.
2: We have reached out and reached out to the and reached out to the petroleum industry. Uh, they keep telling me they don't like mandates. We're going to have a mandate pretty soon, and it won't be good for those that produce liquid uh, motor fuels. And uh, I, I think they need to get they need to be looking at what we're going to do. I don't think that the big um, the the big companies or the big associations are doing much, but I see a lot from individual companies. But we would really like to see the the petroleum industry. Uh, be more willing to have a sit down and have a conversation with the ethanol industry. It's, it's unfortunate we can't seem to get that done.
1: J- John, how does this mesh into the coming debate on the future of the renewable fuel
2: standard program? you know I, I, I think uh, you know I was looking back uh, a couple months ago at some of the stuff we we did uh back in the early 2000s uh, and when we did the first and then the second rfs we we had we had signs and, and ads that we were doing about uh who do you want to be de- uh looking to for your your uh, energy needs you want the american farmer or do you want saddam hussein saddam hussein's been dead for quite a while we're now energy independent we were not back then so we're going to have to sell this a different way and certainly the the low carbon High-octane arguments are good arguments, and they're they're legitimate arguments and and ones that I think we can hang our hat on. We're not going to give up the RFS until we have something better in hand.
0: Well, 313-mile-an-hour speed records out in Nevada with a streetcar don't hurt the image of ethanol either.
2: No, they don't. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so let's let's have more of those go. All right, uh, let's change gears just a little bit and um, talk a, a little more about this transition. We hinted at it earlier uh, that we want to talk about uh, Tom Vilsack coming back to USDA. Jim, you said this morning because of the turmoil with the transition right now, that's probably very good news for USDA that it is Tom Vilsack uh coming back in that position that certainly brings a, a great deal of stability for the agency
1: yes it does and he knows he knows where the people are the career people the excellent career people. He knows how to tap them initially until he can get his people uh, on board. He's well familiar of dealing with the liaison with uh, Congress when he needs to. And of course, he knows the corridors of the White House. And if my sources are correct, he is very close to uh, incoming President Joe Biden. And so I think he's going to have, in addition to his ag portfolio, a uh, a confidential assistant, if you will, to uh, your know, president elect joe biden on a on a host of uh other uh, areas uh to give you my opinion i think he's a transition usda secretary that may even have a higher office in the biden administration mm. in the in the in the next few years but that's getting ahead of
0: ourselves. wow well first john i'll let you uh, react to what jim just said
2: <laughs> oh i think jim's spot on uh you you don't need to draw Uh, Tom Vilsack, any stick man figures as to how to run USDA, uh, he understands that. uh, And the other thing is, and Jim Jim alluded to it, uh, we all owe Tom Vilsack a debt of gratitude because when he was the secretary of the Obama administration, there were a a number of, of just dumb ideas that were coming out of the West Wing, and Tom Vilsack stopped a lot of those and stop all of them but he did a great job in in going to the, the president and saying you know this doesn't work for rural america this doesn't work for farmers and ranchers you know leave these things alone and, and his good relationship with with joe biden i think will allow him to continue to do that and uh we need to support him in in when he does
0: yeah, there are there were a lot of things that went on in uh, the Obama administration when Tom Vilsack was USDA secretary that people don't know about where Tom Vilsack really went to bat for agriculture. You you hit on those. Um, and I think it's also important to note that Tom Vilsack did have his voice heard about issues surrounding the RS and around WOTUS. Now, he ultimately didn't win the day all the time on those, but he did have impact on how those came out, and, and he was able to be heard on those issues and how they impacted agriculture. And I think, as Jim noted, he'll be able to do that even more so because of his relationship with Joe Biden.
1: Yeah, because you learn from from being in in government. So he doesn't have to go through that learning curve whatsoever. So the, he'll be he'll be efficient. He'll be able to tap officials, and several of the officials in the Obama administration are coming back in, and he already knows them. He doesn't have to even introduce himself, and that's all pluses. Now again, it's not going to be all rosy because of you know he's going to have to follow suit on certain. Uh, Uh, initiatives because he is a team player, but he knows production agriculture now. Uh, So, you know, that's his, uh, I think that's his biggest advantage right now. He knows the risk and reward in agriculture that with any regulation, there's a risk. And as long as there's more benefits uh, than not, it's okay. If not, why are you doing it? And I think he learned that.
0: Jim, what do you think his top priorities are going to be coming in Uh, here in just over a week
1: well i think a, a short and longer term it's 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 on the climate change arena i think that's one of the reasons he accepted to come back other than his you know personal friend you know the incoming president asking him to the second one is when, when you hear all the cabinet people that that biden has proposed not just one almost everyone mentions climate change in their acceptance speeches but also in the racial area and of course he's got some history of having to deal with some sensitivities in that within usda so yeah. that's going to be near his top spot uh, as well and it, when he was in the last time the food policy arena was uh, you know in his in his bucket and i don't see that changing as well
0: yeah you're, you're right the issue of race in usda and in agriculture seems to feel like unfinished business for him uh, but he seems genuinely energized john to be taking on climate in his second round at USDA secretary,
2: absolutely. And and uh, we had uh, Tom Vilsack on a, uh, a an effort that we started up uh, uh, last spring on short term demand with our customers, and we had him be part of that effort. And and he mentioned it several times in those discussions. Um, yeah, he's he's excited about it, uh, and and I think we all ought to be excited about it. I think. We have some opportunities here. You know, uh, we did not think we had opportunities to get the ethanol industry to be what it is uh, when we started with the RFS and uh, in, in advocating for that 20 years ago. Look what happened. Uh, I I have every reason to think that we we could have similar opportunities, economic opportunities, uh, with climate change if we do it right. Yeah, and to build yeah. on what John just said, I remember reporting.
1: In the what, late '70s, uh, on the uh, on the gasohol days, remember, and it it just didn't work out. But we learned valuable lessons on structure, how to build a plant more efficiently. Uh, Jeff Braun came in and revo- helped revolutionize the industry. So yeah, you got to go out on a limb sometimes, and not a twig. And and that's what the ethanol industry learned of uh, the creating. Uh, at the beginning, what? It used a lot of water and now it's what? Using 65 to 70% less water consumption? I mean, that's progress. So, as John first said, the technology. In, in agriculture is just just unbelievable. And so that's gonna aid this process. We learned a lot of lessons in the climate change arena. Again, the last time it was pushed. So now we're gonna to go to the modern era. So let's hope that there's opportunities. You said the right word. Let's hope there's
2: opportunities for the ag sector. And the other thing, the, the other lesson we learned in the ethanol discussion and what happened after the first and then even more so the second RFS, those plants were, a lot of them were farmer owned. Almost all of them were in small rural communities. Yes, You know, that's important. Yeah. It's, it's, it's important for, for so many reasons. It's important economically, it's important politically. And, and the, um, the embrace that we've seen of the ethanol industry and, and including from our, our friends in the livestock industry has been really significant, but I think a lot of it is because those plants were put in the right places.
1: Yeah, and look at the success of DDGs now. When they first came out, it was, a thro- it was a cast-off, right, product. Now it's a good alternative when soybean meal prices get too high. And again, to echo what you said, John, in the early days of the ethanol, uh, it gave more than a few farmers who invested with the shares cash flow because they doubled, tripled, or whatever their money. I don't forget things like that.
2: Yeah, and, and you know what's been interesting is I got a call from my good friend Chandler Keyes, who used to uh, run the D.C. shop for the cattlemen and, and has been working for JBS for, for a number of years. He called me up and said, Doggett, we need to talk about ethanol. I thought, God, you know, we've had this discussion. Chandler, I don't want to talk about it anymore. He said, no, you've got to get these plants back open. I said, why? <laughs> he said, because our plants have converted over to stunning and chilling hogs. With, with the CO2 out of, yes. out of ethanol plants, and you guys got to get them open right now. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. What, a, what, <laughs> but, a, what, a, what a great and, deal that is. And, you know. and we know, Chad, if, you know, <laughs> if you know that, well, that's a
1: yes. major development.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, would, it's been a stunning twist that we've seen some of these, these ethanol plants where the ethanol has become a secondary product because, uh, not only because of price, but because of some of these other demands. Yeah. Yeah, yeah this it's is incredible. This is great. Yeah. Well, let's uh, turn to some of the questions and comments coming in. First of all, Margo, thank you so much for the kind comments about our discussion here. I greatly appreciate that. Um, let's go to Michael, who says, I don't see $15 soybeans is going to be good, is going to hurt the livestock uh, feeding industry, clear to the grocery store. Um, and, and I think we all agree on here that there is a range where if we hit uh, on both cattle and soybean prices, it's not good for anybody um, the, in the long term, because of those uh, issues and challenges to the livestock industry,
1: yeah, but the farmer market reporter and me tells me to look back and there was an opportunity for livestock producers and hog producers right. and dairy producers to buy quote a lot cheaper feed grains, okay and soy you know soy meal uh so uh, uh, yes, I would echo what the caller said had there not been the opportunity. Uh, that's when you don't have any choices. But uh, I think let the good times roll from the, produ- from the producer for right now, because I think we're demand rationing right now in the soybean complex. It's going to go pretty quick. And we're seeing it to a degree in the corn, John. Uh, but we're going to have battle for acres. You know this mm-hmm. year, and boy, we haven't heard that for a while. So, uh, it, it'll work itself out. The market has a way. I don't think we're in the Bitcoin arena yet in the <laughs> in the in the commodities. But again, I want to put that perspective. There was an opportunity. There's that word again, to lay off some feed cost. Uh, and if that opportunity was not taken, uh, you know, so be it. The solution to fifteen dollar beans is fifteen dollar beans. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. right yeah, get
1: those plantings. You'll go up seven million acres in soybeans this year. I mean, that's what the numbers are showing right now. And maybe two million up to two million acres more more corn. And that's when then then it'll it'll settle its itself out in eighteen months.
0: yeah, and uh, John, as CEO of the National Corn Growers, you have to have a sly smile on your face when you see beans out there uh, trying to price in some acres because that means that there's going to be a price advantage for some corn acres
2: gladdens my heart Uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know it is so nice seeing uh, some places where that there's a five in front of that corn price instead of a two and
0: and, yeah Yeah, blip there uh, briefly yeah
2: yeah you know and and i had a farmer call me uh uh, all before christmas complaining about the prices and i said what's wrong with the prices Prices are pretty darn good he said well, they weren't when I sold them back in in uh, March and April. <laughs> so, you know, there's I'm always sorry. new crop. There's always new crop, yeah, right? right?
0: Yeah.
1: To lay it off, you know, to such a degree, there was what a few weeks on December 21st, the Congressional Research Service put out very interesting report, controversial now, raising questions of whether or not farmers even need uh, that needed that CFAP uh, three or whatever you want to call that payment, but boy, I heard from farmers saying uh, uh, cash flow problems do do not go away that fast since we've had a dramatic drain in working capital since uh, the peak in 2012. Uh, But so, you know, that's perspective as well. Uh, But I was surprised to see that type of report coming out of the Congressional Research Service. Not that they shouldn't raise questions, but boy, they, they almost got into borderline you know suggestions there, but uh, again, when you talk to uh, you know farmers who have been receiving those much needed, you know, cash flow uh, you know payments, uh, they they they're not saying to and out, you know, for sure.
0: Well, that brings a good question for you, John, in that well, now twenty twenty one is going to bring a form of C F A T payment because of this latest uh, disaster aid package, um, but it is unlikely that there will be any sort of ad hoc payments going into the rest of 2021, whereas those ad hoc payments made, uh, according to USDA, 36% of farm income in 2020. So um, certainly improved market prices are going to pick up some of that, but not all of that. So how do corn growers adjust to this new reality in 2021?
2: Well, you know, the, so many of these payments were, were based either on the, the trade uh, disruptions or, or COVID. Uh both of those are, you know, the trade issue is behind us. Our, our markets have not been um, significantly or are not now significantly being affected by COVID. Uh, so that's going to be hard to make that tie. Uh, farmers say we want more payments, but for what reason? And so that's a, that's a question we have to answer. The other thing is we, let's not forget we have a very, very robust Title I in the farm bill. And we have very good options with crop insurance. Those things are still there, they didn't go away. Uh, and so, you know, we we need to examine uh, the efficacy of those programs as, as we start getting ready for the next farm bill. But I don't see, I don't know that we're gonna see continued big, big payments to agriculture. Uh, hopefully $15 beans and $5 corn uh, will will make a cash flow for folks to keep in business. I would I would think they could. I would
0: think so, yeah. Yeah, let's hope we we get there. Uh, question from Mary uh, for you, Jim. Any updates on PPD reform or dairy pricing before the next farm bill? Or will the new formula be better in 2021 as the country gets back to normal?
1: I think the formula will be better. Uh, Colin Peterson really helped the dairy industry in the last uh, you know, farm bill, his parting gift to, you know, you know, the dairy sector. That's one of the better programs right now, in my judgment, that it gives at least the opportunity for a certain sector of that dairy industry, the smaller to maybe medium, you know, size producer. So I think the safety net is uh, never totally adequate, but it's much better than it ever was during my first 40 years, you know, watching, you know, farm policy. And so now we just have to get more markets uh, uh, opened up. And and that's, you know, ties into the COVID uh, because the dairy, uh, well, the food box program definitely is helping and will continue to help with the recent I think a billion and a half dollars, you know, program, but also to get these COVID vaccines implemented, distributed, and the jabs put in, because that'll that'll begin to open up the food establishments and the schools, uh, etc., traveling restaurants, yeah. and and that we saw much like John said in in Chandler Keys and in the interrelationships with the ethanol industry on what they needed the CO2. We're seeing this significant relationship to the uh, food, you know, system to uh, dairy, uh, to edible, uh, you know, dry edible beans to uh, dairy, you know, products. So that, that's all in an upbeat uh, pattern, uh, at least during the last six months of this year. You can project that we're going to have a pretty good demand pull markets almost across the board. We're seeing it in corn now. We're seeing it in soybeans relative to problems in South America, uh, and in, even in wheat as uh, not just a tag along because Russia's had some problems, Ukraine, etc., but also in the in the meat sector because China still is importing the uh, beef and pork. So y- you'll give me a demand pull market any any day, and that's what we're seeing this calendar year it's not a one month you know phenomena this year
0: all right john i'm sure you're just dying to dog in on dive in on uh dairy policy and dairy pricing aren't you we
2: love dairy cows. They eat corn. Yeah, there you go. There <laughs> you go. A well, cow
1: let's... in every state, right? Yeah. So it's got a lot of clout.
0: <laughs> right, last item on my list, gentlemen, is uh, when the new Congress comes back in after the new president has been sworn in. One of the top issues taken up is going to be expanding those stimulus checks from four from six hundred dollars to two thousand dollars. Um, which means uh, another stimulus package. Is there anything that agriculture is going to be pushing for in that expanded stimulus package? Start with you, Jim.
1: Oh, I want to start
0: with John. <laughs> right, well, let's start with John. Anything? <laughs> well, I to-
1: asked I asked different lobbyists that question this morning, and they said they didn't think so, unless maybe Stabenow wants to put in her climate change language bill, uh, you know, you know, this time. That's really the answer uh, uh, I got. I guess my question would be really, uh, if it includes uh, billions of dollars for the state governments, such as New York, California, and New Jersey, uh, you know, Senator Manchin has already said he won't vote for that. And if it includes that, will they get many to any republican so that could that could throw it up into a, into the uncertainty which i wouldn't have thought just a few hours ago so i don't i don't know whether we have that in like in like flint now that we thought you know earlier this week uh
2: john i i think that the state and local governments needs are are pretty significant um you know my, my dad was a county commissioner in central montana for a long time you know there's there's, there's only so much tax base you have and, and you take small communities like that and, and, and around the country it's been pretty tough. I' How, like to I'd you like to be in a small community with a, with a hospital that has 10 beds I'll make you bet that, that they're they're in real trouble right now. Yeah. We need those hospitals yeah. in rural America and, and if we don't get some relief for, for some of those those, uh, those small towns, those uh, counties, those states, it, it'll affect a lot of people. And, and I think agriculture probably is much more than, than others.
1: Now, that's a targeted approach. And I think you would see widespread support for something like that. It gets into that sensitive issue when you're uh, when some people say that you're bailing out, uh, you know, spending in New York City and Chicago and New Jersey. Yeah, you, you're bailing
0: out Illinois pensions, right, Jim?
1: Yeah. And so <laughs> and that that gets you into this like, oh, Uh, you know, area. But I agree totally with John, when you when you start doing targeted approach, and that's what really this town should be doing more then it makes sense. And rural sector definitely needs it. Uh, What with not only the COVID vaccine, the the availability of doctors, the, the, the uh, the actual, uh, you know, uh, you know, where the offices are for doctors, hospitals, etc. Definitely that is needed.
0: Yeah, but Jim, as as we all know, all three of us here on this call right now, Washington, D.C. right now is not a town that has the time or the finesse for a targeted approach.
1: No, but I think it's eventually going to have to happen. It it will. And we'll see. We're going to see the return. I just don't know when. I think we have to. Go through the, the 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 timeline of Trump leaving. You're going to see yeah. next week the House. It looks like the odds now favor that they're going to file impeachment papers uh, Monday already, and they could impeach him. But I think that's the bitterness of this uh, of the of, of some House, you know, Democrats. I don't see the Senate going along because you need two thirds of the vote. But sooner or later, we're going to get back to what Reagan. I think John, you said you came in when Reagan was in he he said the line i'll never forget uh, revenge is an emotion not a policy and both parties should heed that and uh, eventually we'll get back there because the events this week uh told us that we have to have more than a self you know you know midterm correction we 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 have to rethink uh, some of the horrible bitteral. Uh, viral attitudes we have you know from all camps and so you know you know let's be done with it this thing's you know being tired you know let's get to that middle ground like John said because it's out there the middle ground is out there they're just not being heard
0: yeah, Jim I, I, I'm gonna oh, go ahead Joe, John
2: well you know I, I, I tell folks all the time you know if a, if a candidate's running and saying I'm going to go to I don't know anything about Washington I'm completely ignorant about it and I'm going to go to Washington and fight you know yeah and and then people say I, I don't understand why why washington can't get anything done because you send a bunch of stupid knuckleheads that don't know how to listen instead all want to fight
1: yeah. It, yeah it's
2: on both sides of the aisle yeah, absolutely what what i want what i have suggested to, you know i've had candidates call me over the years i said if you represent a rural district go to washington sit down shut up and listen to what somebody from a Uh, an urban district somebody from a suburban district Mm
0: -hmm. what's
2: going on in there what's going on with their constituents what are the important things to them you might find out that you have some common things and that you're going to have an opportunity to talk about your rural district but if you go in there and sit back in the corner and yell and scream you're not you're not effectively representing your constituents the problem in washington does not start in washington it starts in America, the rest of America, because we are sending these knuckleheads to Washington and expecting them to get something done.
0: Yeah. Indeed. In fact, uh, Margo's there applauding you on comments to it. I'll applaud you as well, John. And, and Jim, before we go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take uh, one, some issue with one thing you said. Uh, I, I do agree that what is driving the uh, impeachment effort is vengeance, um, and that is wrong. Um, I will say, however, that the events that took place Wednesday are so horrific. So were such an attack on the Constitution of the United States. There needs to be some significant response to that. And quite frankly, impeachment and proceedings and and barring Trump from ever running for president again are, are the only mechanism that we have at our disposal at this moment.
1: It's an impeachable offense. But again, the timeline, we have 12 days. You know, and again, just from a religiosity standpoint, uh, you uh, you know, Trump may have treated, uh, may have, he did. He treated his opponents viscerally, okay, but yeah. that doesn't mean you have to do the same thing. We have 12 days, 12 days. Most common people will say, well, make sure that he doesn't do anything really bad,
0: you know. but well, And there does seem to be efforts... Yeah, there seem to be efforts underway today to make sure that doesn't happen. You saw the statements from uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and uh, Speaker Pelosi about their discussion of making sure the safeguards on the nuclear arsenal. Um, yes, those other cons- that should be. That yeah. makes
1: sense. You know, that makes sense. But but again, it, it it just plays into the hands of emotions to go through the process again where it brings up the politics of it. Does Nancy Pelosi, House Speaker Pelosi, just want to see Trump impeached twice because no other president has been impeached twice, you know? It just raises all these issues again. Well, but then
0: what other mechanism is there to fully repudiate the actions that were taken Wednesday?
1: You look at Trump the last few days, and it's been so unlike Trump. He's not only demoralized, which he should be, he's caved in under support. He has lost many of the establishment Republicans, etc. But
0: but, but but that is not the organization of the United States of America repudiating what took place. And so I, I you think would that want to, to see happen. him
1: actually impeached in 12 days, in 12 days.
0: Well, not necessarily in 12 days. Uh, again, to me, uh, the, I, I feel somewhat satisfied in what I've seen today that that the capability for him to take action against the United States has been marginalized. Um, or I should say take action against the United States again. Um But but I think that there needs and I don't so I don't think that he needs to necessarily be removed from office in 12 days because that's a huge hill to climb. But I do think that there needs to be a public repudiation uh, from the organization of the United States in whatever form that is. It could be a repudiation of what took place. A censure vote could be censure vote, but a censure vote still doesn't block him from running again.
2: You know, it was interesting yesterday, uh a, a voice of moderation um and of of restraint was Josh Bolton of all people. I mean, if Josh been Josh Bolton said first do no harm and you could make this worse by by impeaching him or invoking the twenty-fifth amendment. Yeah. And so when 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 Josh Bolton is is your voice of moderation and reason, I, that's that's something else
0: <laughs> yeah. that is. That is, um, but, but the point I was, I was trying to get to there is that doesn't necessarily have to be done in the 12 days that can, that process can still yeah. play out after the, the next there, 12 days. Just
1: there's no right answer. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, you know? it's, it's well, an ugly situation, just ugly situation. It is an ugly situation over but,
0: with, but we've got a bright week ahead of us. So Jim, as always, and John be thinking, cause I'll come to you next on this. Where are you looking for a signal over the noise next week? It may, may be hard to find signal over all the noise we're going to get next week. But where are well, you the be signal's
1: for? coming into next week? Yeah, you want to see. Uh, well, you want the the remaining cabinet people in, especially in the security areas, to stay on the job. So I'll be looking at that. Two is you want. I will be looking at to see if Trump stays, uh, d- 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 uh, you know, demoted, if you will. Uh, hopefully he will. Third is I think we're just in the marketplace. We're in a, a really bullish market, so we're going to see. We're going to get those, <laughs> which USDA. is just
0: unbelievable.
1: Yeah, we're going to get those USDA reports on the what the twelfth, I guess, and it should show a declining carryover and squeezy tight stocks to use for soybeans and uh John you may want to tell your friend who sold uh what corn early he uh, may want to blame that on USDA for having very unrealistic estimates early on of China's corn demand so I, I again i'll i i've been shouting that for months and i don't like being negative to USDA but i think the world board let down the ag sector big time and they should have act ac- more adequately forecast the demand pull markets that we're seeing right now because a lot of people did but that's what I'll be looking at in the uh in the week ahead
0: well, that was going to be my first question to John was uh, in this segment is are we going to see a realistic number from the world board on China come Tuesday
1: on corn China yeah me
2: yeah yeah you <laughs> you're the corn guy come on
0: we're, we're fine find uh, reasonable. <laughs> just <laughs> something that know. falls in line with the, the export reports we've already had. Well people have long complained about
2: these these government numbers and they and they always will it's just part of it's part of agriculture. I mean it's it's ingrained in the in the DNA. <laughs> uh, but there's been some some mistakes made and some things that have not gone the right way and uh we all need to work on those in, in in times to come. Uh and I'm hoping that the secretary T- secretary Vilsack can, can deal with some of that because uh, we have way too many people now not trusting these numbers at all.
1: Yeah. Now yeah, Seth yeah, Meyer um... is coming in as the chief economist, and I know he must be in town because I got his old email at FAPRI returned, so that tells me, and it's USDA email, he said, for the replacement, and Seth is a good guy. He used to be over the world board, so I think that's another good development that I see because Seth knows the operations, and he's going to work very closely with incoming Secretary Vilsack, so that's another plus. So maybe he can find out some of the oddities that I've seen and others going on at the world board they're just not up to snuff anymore
0: well in fact i'll tell you jim been talking to seth today he is going to be talking with us tuesday afternoon after the reports come out and we will have comments from seth meyer uh later tuesday afternoon after the reports come out that's and maybe true. even from uh when his name's escaping me, the chairman of the world board we may be talking with him next week as well. on Agri- yeah on, uh, on i used to work with him he's a good guy yeah so we may get some deeper insight to that all right uh john where else are you looking for signal in the coming week
2: first uh i hope the president uh stays calm stays quiet and doesn't do anything else that will create a problem for the country uh and and i think that the 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 folks that are still in the cabinet are going to be working on that and i'm like jim the, the national security folks, I think, are very committed to making sure that, that something crazy doesn't happen. Secondly, I think the, the other thing I'm looking for next week is, are we going to start getting this, this vaccine rollout? Um, we're way, way, way behind. We need to get these vaccines in arms as soon as we possibly can. I'm hoping that, you know, a lot of these bugs and a lot of these systems and their local bugs, I'm hoping that they get worked out and we 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 get vaccines in arms. It nothing else is going to happen in this country until we 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 defeat COVID. We have to defeat COVID. And, uh, you know, I had another person I know pass away last week from this. We lost four thousand people yesterday. We're, We're we are in a horrible place on this. We have to we have to conquer the the pandemic. John, before we leave, I wanted to ask
1: you something popped up on my screen here. EPA Administrator Wheeler is going to make a an ag announcement in Mississippi Monday with Senator Hyde Smith, state officials and the Mississippi Farm Bureau president. Uh, Do you know anything about this? I hate to break this on you. I don't know. Is that dicamba or? Yeah, I don't know.
2: It might be dicamba, but boy I, I'd hate to, to to speculate, Jim. Okay. All anyway, right. that's late breaking
1: news We're going to Late to breaking news I'll, I'll have to look at that Monday Why is he going down there and what they're going to announce Okay.
0: Alright, so watch for Jim, uh, Jim Wiesmeyer's <laughs> newsletter Over the weekend and see what the, the late breaking news is on that With that, gentlemen, uh, thank you so much First of all, John Doggett, I really appreciate thank you making John. time I hope yeah. you'll join us again on this sometime
2: Yeah, Absolutely, I've, I've enjoyed this and uh, would love to do it And uh, we'll see what happens But it's, you know, we're in a new year Uh, there's hope there's opportunity we live in the greatest country in the world we've had a tough week we've had tough weeks in this country before but we're americans and we're going to work to have the best democracy that we possibly can and that and that starts with us that doesn't start in washington dc that starts with us in in our own homes and our own communities
0: great message and john don't wait for us to call us if you got something you want to talk about or don't wait for us to call you if you got something to talk about call us absolutely jim as always great insight we appreciate it and we'll be watching the newsletter over the weekend thanks john all right thanks, that God. wraps it up for this week's edition of dc signal to noise